One of the most painful parts of my life education came when I was a college student. Uh, because I did well at some political science contest, I was invited to join the staff of my home state uh, U.S. senator. My job on his staff as a 20-year-old was to write replies uh, to letters from the senator's staff. His Washington office would send me, in those days by snail mail, a big stack of letters from constituents, and then I would, I would handwrite notes. I didn't, I didn't promise anything. It was fairly innocuous stuff, but it just made people feel nice to get a handwritten letter that said United States Senate on it. Before we go any further, those who know me are no doubt wondering privately in the voice of your favorite uh, politician in your head, how could they read the letters? Wayne's handwriting is absolutely unintelligible. <clears throat> ha, shows what you know. I once had excellent penmanship. True story, I won the penmanship award in sixth grade. I just traded my good penmanship in for a couple of academic degrees. Uh, it is a little-known fact that universities will actually not award you a doctoral sheep's grin if your handwriting is readable. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. But handwriting was not the hard lesson I learned from the senator. I did well enough that they started giving me some writing assignments of more consequence. I started writing more things. And, uh, and in fact, then they even let me write a couple of speeches that went well. And then I started being invited to these dinners with all of the senator's staff. And that's where the lesson came, because what I saw there was very disturbing. The expense of those meals was astounding, and you paid for it all. Yep. I saw politicians dining on lobster and much more at public expense. But it gets worse. The education gets worse. Later, God suckered me into joining pastoral ministry. And in ministry, I learned that politicians have no corner on the market of personal enrichment. I was appalled to find pastors taking expensive vacations and meals at church expense, buying cars and even jets all on the ministry budget. It was sick. Now, wise friends, I want you to think about that scenario. Okay, put yourself in my shoes. What was the biggest danger I faced? Young man, horrified to discover such self-aggrandizement in people who were supposedly serving. What was my biggest threat? What was it, everybody? Cynicism. Yeah. You see, cynicism is a huge threat when the idealism of youth takes blows. Just as physical jaundice is a serious problem for many newborns, spiritual jaundice is a great threat to those who are newborn into adulthood. Thankfully, it was during that same season that I really got to know Nehemiah. The Old Testament hero Nehemiah reminded me that servanthood really can exist and servanthood is not antithetical to strong leadership. This is the antidote you need right now. Open your Bible. Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's learn together. Go to chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Verse 14. Furthermore, and, and, and he's just been talking about something we studied a few days ago. He's been talking about all of the efforts that they've been doing to establish justice, to, to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God, make changes in the culture in Jerusalem. Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. They gave it all away. Look, he describes. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking food and wine from them as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates oppressed the people, but I didn't do this because of the fear of God. Instead, I devoted myself to construction of the wall, and my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. 
There were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six joy sheep, some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was fried every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food a lot of the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. As we state in our notes, oh, in your worship guide, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open up your worship guide, look on the left-hand side, and you'll see the headline, Nehemiah was a servant leader. That's a phrase one hears often these days, but it needs to be understood in context. Servant leadership is a biblical concept. It has become mainstream in many cultures because of Christian influence. In essence, a servant leader is a person who accepts responsibility and authority, yet Instead of lording his or her position over others, the servant leader commits to serve others. The ultimate example of servant leadership is whom, everybody? Who is it? It's Jesus. Yeah, fully God. Jesus became fully human as well to save and to serve mankind. Read with me. Jesus' definitive statement on his kind of service. Matthew chapter 20. Uh, you read the underlying text. Jesus called them over. Uh, by the way, this is happening right after a particularly serious moment of self-aggrandizement in two of Jesus' disciples. Uh, we won't name them, but their initials are James and John. Jesus called them over. He said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And the men of high position exercise power over them. So you, you have to say it like that. Come on. It, exercise power. Let's try it again. That was, you, come on. Into the spirit of the speech. This is a conversation going on here. Okay. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know the rulers of Gentiles dominate them. And the men of high position exercise power over them. Beautiful. All right. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man. By the way, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It has a lot of really cool Old Testament connotations. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well done. That's the essence of servant leadership right there. It's a hot topic in current business books, and yet... Folks, outside the Bible, I can find no hint of a developed model of servant leadership. I, I can't. Instead, this guy is the norm and almost universal idea of leadership throughout history. 80 BC, Gnaeus Cornelius Dolabella was posted as the uh, Roman procurator for the province of Macedonia. When he got to Macedonia, Dolabella bled those people financially. Oh my goodness. Here's what he did. He forced the people, anybody who had a business, to take out massively high interest loans which he got all the interest. He then set up a bribery-backed, uh, what we would call a protection racket. This guy was wicked. But Dolabella won an important military victory from Rome. Thrace threatened the eastern border of the empire, and Dolabella's army put them down. As a result, this overbearing, corrupt excuse for a leader was given a triumphal parade in Rome. A little bit later in history, a young lawyer, you may have heard of him, a guy named Julius Caesar, he tried to bring corruption charges against Dolabella, but influenced by Senate bribes, the Senate found Dolabella not guilty. That, my friends, is exactly what so-called leadership looks like throughout most of human history. By contrast, consider Nehemiah. Our text exposes four amazing traits that made Nehemiah different than the normal excuse for leadership that we see in the world. Four traits. Number one, he accepted the challenge of power. This is a really big idea. Too often, godly people are so turned off by the corruption of life that they are afraid to step out and serve. For example, 
Just a couple of years ago, I was at lunch with this pastor who was just on the cusp of becoming really famous in, in human eyes. By the way, scripturally, he was already famous spiritually, and that's what matters. But he was about to become very, very well-known in the world. This pastor, though, get this, this guy on the edge of becoming very famous, he was seriously considering stepping down from his ministry and leaving it altogether. Because, as he said to me at lunch, and I quote, Wayne, I don't want to end up like some kind of creepy televangelist, close quote. In response, I told him two things. Number one, I said, there is no guarantee that you will stop being yourself just because of recognition. In fact, I even promised to help keep him humble. Here's what I did. I, I said that I would send all of the defeating and disruptive people from our church to join his. I was kidding, of course, but I did offer. He declined. The, um, the second thing I said is that it is far better for all in God's kingdom if you will accept the challenge of power. Just accept the challenge of power. It is a challenge, but please accept it, I begged him. And he did. In fact, I told him not to take my word, on, word for it. Uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll has had to deal with a lot of fame and power. And in his book on Nehemiah, Chuck Swindoll points out the importance of accepting the challenge. Look what he says. This is great stuff. Many Christians seem afraid to accept responsibilities that are beyond themselves. Some of the most qualified leaders I know are born-again people. Yet frequently, we Christians adopt the idea that to be spiritual, one must hide away in the shadows because one has to be carnal to live in the limelight, not so, close quote, Christians, we need to be like Nehemiah and accept the challenges of power. And we don't do so for ourselves. We do so for the good of people. Proverbs 29, verse 2 explains. Read it with me, everybody. Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And by the way, I probably need to take a moment and applaud you in this Frisco Bible Church. A year ago, you remember this? A year ago, our elders issued a challenge to you to pursue deeper involvement in cultural leadership. It was a, it was a part of our big Imagine campaign. Since then, I'm really proud of you. Since then, here's what has happened. Here's just a little glimpse of what has happened. Two members of this church are serving on a brand new city committee. There, there are two members of this church that are on council, have accepted council seats in two different cities in this area. And by the way, we've got a third city we have a council member of if we include the staff of all the difference. Uh, we, ha we have somebody here who is an interim director of a very powerful city board, and we have four different major positions that I know of that have been accepted in academia, as well as, I forgot and left out, someone reminded me after the first service, as well as the creation of a brand new foundation by someone in this church. We are proud of you, and we are grateful for you all. As long as you remain humble and engaged and righteous, the people can rejoice. All God's people said, amen. amen. Nehemiah accepted the challenge. He also drained the swamp. Verses 15 and 16 are supposed to be shocking. Ancient audiences would have been aghast at the thought of a governor not taking advantage of every opportunity offered his position. For example, Persian practice allowed Nehemiah, as the provincial governor, to get first right of refusal on any piece of property for sale. Do you know that? And, and, and further, that land could be purchased by Nehemiah with an interest-free government-backed loan. Wouldn't that be nice? And, and get this last one. Ooh, this, this is dark. Nehemiah could also, as the governor, take the lands of anybody who was ruled an enemy of the state. He could take their lands and use that land for his personal cost. That led to serious abuses, as you can imagine, in many cases. Nehemiah refused any of these perks. Look, verse 15 shows that he cared more for the people in his own comfort. 
Verse 16 tells us that he, his assistants, actually did real work. That's not to suggest, please don't be Pollyanna about this, that is not to suggest that everyone universally loves it when a leader drains the swamp of the graft that has preceded him. Think about it. In nearly every leadership situation in life, there are strong forces that oppose servant leadership. In fact, Nehemiah endured very rough opposition, including assassination attempts, directly because he cared more about others than himself. Nehemiah's situation is really intriguing. Scripture tells us about some of his opponents, and I think it's pretty easy to build a list of other people who could have been very angry about his refusal of the corrupt norm. Think this through. Um, Here's some people we know or we can surmise would have been very angry about Nehemiah draining the swamp. Uh, Vendors who profited from the government's normal allotments. They wouldn't have been happy about this anti-corruption campaign, would they? What about the, the stakeholders in a larger bureaucracy? They're not thrilled. The subordinates of his, there had to be some who just abhorred physical labor on the wall. And then other officials, this one's really significant, other officials who look bad in comparison to this good guy. And then, of course, all those who scoff at this God whom Nehemiah fears. Now, you look at that list, and you realize this is not just an ancient issue, is it? That list is as current as your company today. Why is that? Why is this so universal? Because swamps don't like to be drained. The deep state always resists. Folks, the political image of a corrupt bureaucracy as a swamp developed for a reason. Just just think how hard it is to change physical swamps, right? The, The classical city of Rome spent decades trying to get rid of malaria and drain that city that is so low it's just a veritable swamp. They built the most sophisticated drainage system the world had ever seen, an engineering marvel that would not be surpassed for 1,900 years. The Cloaca Maxima, one of the great achievements in human history in terms of engineering, and it has been added to year after year after year. The greatest water engineers in history have always worked in Rome, and yet Rome still floods on a appallingly regular basis. Despite the difficulties, despite the floods that are going to come, Nehemiah stays with his plan to drain the swamp. What a servant leader. Nehemiah accepted the challenge. He changed the bureaucratic nightmare. Number three, he led by example. Verse 16 says he worked on the wall. He worked himself. Now, that doesn't mean that the governor hauled bricks all day. I mean, if he did that, there was no one who could do the things that only he could do. Everyone had their role. We know that Nehemiah was overseeing and that he had the trumpeter right next to him to rally the people in case of attack. He, he may have had a different role than other people, but he was nonetheless actively working. The example is he was engaged in the labor, and he led by fiscal example as well. Look, he didn't set up inside deals for his cronies. That is a massively important divergence from the warped standard. The norm is to use one's opportunities to pay back one's supporters or one's posse, Right? Little has changed in the world since Quintius Tullius Cicero wrote this to his brother, his more famous brother, Marcus, in uh, the first century B.C. Quintus wrote his brother, and I quote, Remind people that you can only do them favors if they help you achieve power. Close quote. Right? Kickbacks are the human norm. Just this week, just this past week, the city of Dallas uh, removed a housing official and placed him under investigation. 
He apparently steered $825,000 in federal funds toward a friend of his who is under bribery and corruption investigation. Such are the normal examples in our world. By contrast, Nehemiah ran the expenses of his office slash embassy, and it was really both, without extra taxation. Not, not only did he not misuse funds, he took the stuff that was intended for him and he used it to feed hundreds of people each month with admirable honesty and efficiency. Nehemiah is very zealous that extra burdens be removed from the people. Um, <clears throat> speaking of taxation, got to take a quick sidebar here. Okay, got to take a quick sidebar uh, so that I don't have to answer a bunch of political mail this week that I don't have time to answer, all right? Whenever you speak on Nehemiah, whenever you speak on this aspect of Nehemiah, the anti-taxation people in the audience tend to get really excited, okay? Some of them will even read Nehemiah and say, oh, God here is declaring taxation wrong. Not so fast, Lone Ranger. Taxation is indeed a regular issue in the book. But, but listen, Nehemiah shows no desire to withhold taxes. He shows no desire to upend the system. The invisible hand that Nehemiah trusts all apologies to Adam Smith. The invisible hand Nehemiah trusts is God's, not the marketplace. Now, when you say that, this always happens. The socialists in your congregation get really excited because they think, oh my goodness, we've got our anti-capitalism hero in the Bible. It's Nehemiah. Hold your horses, Tonto. Nehemiah's commitment to personal property ownership, he is committed to personal property ownership, and that is exactly in keeping with Moses' law. In fact, look at this. All of his communal offerings and the sacrifices in Nehemiah, they're all free will. They are never imposed by our government, so he cannot be a socialist. Rather than politicize Nehemiah inappropriately, we should note that by God's grace, he led by example, and so should we. Amen? Speaking of God, Nehemiah feared God. That's the headline atop the right side of our notes. The fourth aspect of Nehemiah's servant leadership is he feared God. Fearing God is one of the seminal ideas in the Bible. It's got two major meanings, but um, sadly people tend to only see one aspect or the other. They rarely see both. We're going to try to look at both. First meaning of fearing God is that God cares very, very much how human beings treat other human beings. He is to be feared in the sense that God has retribution in store for anyone who takes advantage of or lords their position over others. There is no excuse for domestic violence. There is no room for bullying or infidelity or stealing or filthy language. All these sins and others are going to be recompensed by God. L listen, listen to what the Lord says through Isaiah. It is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will repay them fully. This is, a, this is a statement for Israel, but the principle applies to all people of all time. As Jesus makes clear in the New Testament, he says in Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. God will judge. Knowing that, the wise person takes a longer view. Instead of taking advantage of self-exalting opportunities, now the wise one fears God and operates with eternity in mind. Nehemiah avoids sin because he takes such a long view. Let, let's put it this way. He fears God more than he desires immediate gratification. The second aspect of fearing God is reverence. L look at the text. The word we render fear in Nehemiah 5.15, it's the Hebrew yirat. Uh, it's, a, it's a form of a very common Semitic term, yare. Um, it's a really old word. In fact, yare was apparently first written down quite a bit of time before Abraham was even born. It's a really old word. It's used to depict the, uh, the proper office that one shows to a superior officer, um, like, like bowing before the king. 
The other day, the president of our bank, the president of our bank walked into my office. Tell me, when he walked in, do you think that I just kept my feet up on the desk and just kept reading what I was reading and said, oh, hey, I'll be with you in a minute. Uh, grab a chair. You, that's what I said? No. I greeted him at the door, and I had tea and coffee ready for him, which is actually what I do for every visitor because God wants us to treat every guest as a jewel resting on the cushion of hospitality. Yahweh is an important part of a proper response to Yahweh. He, as almighty king, is worthy of reverence. He is more worthy of honor than any human you will ever meet. So get your feet off the desk. Amen? Nehemiah's fear of God includes both reverence and a long view of judgment. This gives him the strength to do what is right even in the face of opposition. He doesn't treat people well because people are holy. Look what he says. He treats people well because God is holy. Now, I'm told this is especially difficult to do in politics. My friends that are politicians say that, that both the mass populace uh, with the media and individual power brokers can be really intimidating to the person who's in authority. But look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the politician, focuses on God. He, he sees that God is the only one worth fearing. And, and so Nehemiah's focus on God is his only motivation. That's why he says, because of the fear of God. By the way, a similar idea is found in his verse 19 prayer. See that in verse 19? We're going to skip that uh, because we're going we're to fully develop this next time. Suffice it for now to say this. Nehemiah's five statements of remember me, my God, with favor. He says that five times in the book. Those five statements are neither this is what they're not. They're neither the crowings of personal aggrandizement, nor, this is kind of how it reads to us, the whining pleas of somebody who is doubtful of his reception. These are statements of focus. Nehemiah is focused on fearing God. Remember our earlier discussions about disillusioned cynicism, right? Cynicism is a huge threat when the idealism of youth takes blows. Just as physical jaundice is a serious problem for many newborns, spiritual jaundice is a great threat for those who are newborn into adulthood. Parents, what is the best cure for jaundice in a little baby? What is it, everybody? Yeah, the sun, sunshine. The sun uh, light activates a series of physical chemical changes that spark the liver and, and it gets rid of the yellow in a similar way. It is the shining brightness of God that gets rid of our yellowed vision and our cynical hearts. For example, few people in history have had as much reason to be cynical as the prophet Malachi. Very few people have as many reasons to be jaundiced as Malachi. But look at God's declaration through Malachi. Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Dear cynical people, and here I, I speak especially to those under 40 because surveys show that you are the most prone to jaundiced spirits in this age. Dear cynical people, dear scornful friends, Please, let God's word shine in your heart. Learn again to, to skip and to jump like, like the calves that are out in that field that is right next door to our church. Stop giving in to, to your pessimism and your eternal skepticism. Fear God alone and enjoy the son of his righteousness. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Now, flip over to chapter 11. Go over to chapter 11. Leave 5, go to 11, where we learn that the, the selfless example spread. Nehemiah's selfless example spread. It had wide impact. Uh, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. You got it? Okay. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem 
and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine tenths remained in their towns. The people praised all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. As a reminder, nobody wanted to live in that ruined old city. But, but the leaders set an example, and they willingly stayed there and put roots down there. The, the people had all stayed in there temporarily at the end of the wall-building project and, and very likely found it uncomfortable. But for the good of the country, Jerusalem had to be repopulated. So what they did was they cast lots for one-tenth of the population to forcibly resettle there. But, but, look at verse 2. A bunch of selfless people were so inspired by the leader's sacrifice, they willingly put themselves on the line as well. These seem to be beyond the 10% that were conscripted. These are volunteers. They move their families from the productive suburbs into the decayed inner city. This... This kind of sacrifice, this selflessness is stirring. Sometimes one sees this kind of selflessness in the military. You guys are Texans. Uh, William Barrett Travis is one of your heroes for good reason. He selflessly makes a stand at the Alamo, right? Look, at that moment, Travis and all the rest who are with him know that he is surrendering his life for his country by staying there and fighting. They all know that. And when he offers those 180 other people the, the choice, 179 of them, inspired by his example, step over the line, and they sacrifice as well. Selfless. This guy had a similar effect on the British Navy. This is one of my heroes, Edward Pellew, one of the greatest guys of whom you've never heard. He was the finest frigate commander in history, bar none by any measure, brilliant leader, his brilliant leadership, especially his selfless Christian example, it drew scores of talented commanders into the Navy. In fact, the Naval Service in the late 18th and early 19th century swelled because of him. He is greatly responsible for the dominance of the British Navy that, uh, that blessed the world in the 19th century. This doesn't happen only in the military now. When you are regularly selfless at work, people notice. When, when you're willing to help at school, it has an impact. I tell you, do it long enough and do it out of reverence for the Lord and, and people may begin to imitate you. Okay, let's turn to one last passage. Last passage, go to chapter 13 where Nehemiah gives up the good life. It's the good life. Na-da-da. He gives up the good life. Chapter 13, verse 6. While all this was happening, now all this is uh, something we studied earlier. It's a, um, it's a situation in Jerusalem that's very, very moving where they are reestablishing the law of God in people's lives. So while all that is happening, I was not in Jerusalem, says Nehemiah, because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. As part of his work, Governor Nehemiah is required to report to the emperor. Look, look up here at the map. Let me show you how this works. The, the Persian uh, king, Artaxerxes, the emperor, he's taken the court on tour. By the way, that's something the Persian monarchs did fairly regularly. They had, uh, they had four places they went to most often. Uh, Susa was the main capital. <clears throat> Excuse me, Susa right here. Uh, in the summertime, Susa gets really hot, so they would go up to the mountains, beautiful mountain city called Ekbaktana back then. They would go up here. Uh, Persepolis was very important in the Persian mindset, so they would often have ceremonial court in Persepolis. And then one of the most prosperous cities in the world was Babylon, so they would have court there. Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to the emperor, 
Nehemiah, when all this started, he is required by Artaxerxes to make the trip to Babylon. He has to go show up at his boss's place and go give a report. By this time, Nehemiah has been governor for 12 years. Think about it. He has done everything he set out to do and more. The walls and gates around the city are completely restored. The temple sacrifices are resumed with Ezra. The people have been cleansed of their acceptable sins. It's been a fantastic run. Nehemiah could have stayed in Babylon. He could have said, man, I, I did enough. I, I, I got it all going. I did my part. Instead, he returns to the hard work. In fact, he had to work hard to get back to Jerusalem. See how the text says Nehemiah asked for a leave of absence? That means he was not automatically free to head back. Remember, Nehemiah had been cupbearer to the emperor, one of the most powerful and trusted positions in the royal service. He was only released for temporary service in Jerusalem. And it, we know that he had given Artaxerxes set parameters on when he would return. So, so when Nehemiah asked to go back in chapter 13, this represents a big ask. This is a huge request. He's asking the most powerful man in the world to rewrite his contract. Frankly, I don't know about you, but if I'm Artaxerxes, I say no to this. I do. I say, we had a deal. The work's been done. I'm, I'm thankful for all you've achieved. Now, I need you back here. That's what I would have said. But apparently, the emperor was swayed, and it seems like he was swayed by Nehemiah's obvious selflessness. Now, it's unclear whether he sent Nehemiah back as governor again. Uh, given Persian practice, that seems really unlikely to me. So, our hero is very possibly, he's very possibly giving up his station and his income as well. This is huge. It, Consider what he is asking for. Life in Jerusalem means living in an underpopulated shell with no good restaurants, no health care, no working sewage, continual political attacks, and very likely no job. Compare that with Babylon, Susa, Ekbaktana, all the other cities home to the traveling capital. In, in, in cool Ekbaktana in the summer, in Susa and Babylon in the winter. Great restaurants, prime health care, the best city services, political power, a fantastic career position. Now you see why we say Nehemiah gave up the good life. You, you want to see a typical person laugh? You want to see somebody laugh? Ask him or her to give money. Not just tip, not, not just the typical 2% that, that Christians give to their church. No, no. Ask them to sacrifice. Here's what you should do. Put it in these terms. Say, I, I really think you should give up some things you could have so God's work can go forward. They will, they will usually laugh in your face. I know. Sometimes they'll get indignant. They'll be appalled that you would suggest that life is better when they give up the good life for God's better way of living, right? And before we cluck our tongues at how selfish other people are, oh, the terrible people, let's look in the mirror. Ask yourself, here, just do this. Ask yourself this. What have I surrendered lately? What have I surrendered lately so God's work could be done? Now, many here have been very selfless, very proud of you. You're, you're teaching children, you're leading youth, discipling adults, sharing the gospel, serving in missions, giving sacrificially. In fact, your sacrificial giving toward the future of this ministry, that's why that bank president was in my office. But, but, having said that, every single one of us here, not other people, every one of us here, have areas where we are still holding on to the good life, right? We have these arenas of thought and practice where we act like owners, not stewards of God's, of God's things. We, we expect others to be selfless while we excuse our own pet areas of selfishness. 
we should undergo continual reformation to be more like Nehemiah. That's what happened to a young missionary, this guy, a fellow named Jim Elliott. October 28, 1949, Jim wrote this in his journal, and I quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Close quote. Not long after that, Jim would be martyred for Christ. His journal entry has become one of the most off-quoted statements in the world. In fact, it's quoted so often, it's sometimes assigned to C.S. Lewis, which is a sure sign that you've made it as a quote. Um, he, here, here it is in his journal. This is the original right here. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Brilliant, succinct statement. Jim knew this life isn't what lasts. It is not wrong. Listen, it's not wrong to enjoy life and things. For heaven's sakes, God tells us he gives us all good things to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying good things and life, but when we selflessly, willingly sacrifice enjoyments, we gain eternal rewards. We gain what we cannot lose by sacrificing stuff that is not going to last anyway. Nehemiah is a servant leader whose example spreads. He sacrifices selflessly, and he fights for right. Now, pick up where we left off in verse 7. Okay, go back to verse 7. Uh, we stop in the middle of the verse. So I could return to Jerusalem. Then, when he gets back to Jerusalem... I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased. I really think Nehemiah wrote that a number of times and finally came back and edited it to greatly displeased. And threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered the rooms be purified, and I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offering and frankincense. Back in Jerusalem, Nehemiah fights for right. He kicks Tobiah out of God's temple. Tobiah the Ammonite, we've met him earlier in the book, he had married into the high priest Eliashib's family. By the way, Tobiah even gave his children Jewish names. But Tobiah is no follower of Yahweh. In fact, he was one of the main conspirators fighting against Nehemiah's restoration efforts. Very wisely, Nehemiah had never allowed Tobiah to set foot in the city of Jerusalem. But, but now he gets back to town after being gone. He finds Tobiah has taken up large parts of the storage rooms that are connected to God's temple. The, the fox is not merely in the farmyard. He has built a nest in the hen house, okay? That was inappropriate for anyone, much less a Gentile. Those rooms are prescribed by God's law to be used for the Levites for their storage. So Nehemiah is right to respond with force here. Again, Swindoll is spot on on this text. I love him on this text. Look what he says. Chuck Swindoll says, Isn't it interesting that we really don't know how to get mad about the right things? Too often we jump and scream about the wrong things. You'll never convince me in a thousand years. Nehemiah folded his hands and said, Tisk, tisk, that is a shame. We must pray about what we should do with Tobias' belongings. No! He opened the door and said, Haul that crap out! Uh, stuff out! Sorry. I promise you Chuck said something worse than that. All right. They carried, out, they carried out Tobiah's belongings, and when the room was stripped clean, swept out, and ready, they brought in the grain. Nehemiah did that because he was determined, this is well said, he would not live with wrong Tobiah's evil in a place that was built for right. Close quote. Nehemiah fights for the right things. That, that was Jesus' motivation in cleansing the temple when he cleansed the temple. That's why we stand up for widows and orphans. That's why we speak truth in love on social issues. We fight for right. 
Nehemiah fights against these sins of commission. And the little next section, look at this. He fights to make up for sins of omission as well. Uh, Read our last section, uh, verses 10 through 13. I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, means they hadn't been paid, because of the portions of Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the, the service, the worship, had gone back to his own field. Therefore, I rebuked the officials, saying, Why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, and oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses uh, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pideah of the Levites with Hanan son of Zachur, son of Mataniah, to assist them because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. He looks out for other servants' needs. The Mosaic Code required that the Levites, the, the people that managed the temple and the worship there, that they be paid out of the offerings that people brought. But the Levites have all gone out into the suburbs working their own fields to stay alive. Now, by the way, Levites are allowed to own property and own fields, but, but that's supposed to be side income for them. That's not supposed to be their mainstay. Now, it's hard to tell if the people had been chary in their giving. That could be it. They hadn't been offering. Or if the grain was there, but it was just set aside and being saved up and, and not distributed. No, not for you, your Levite. Uh, the, the, the latter... This seems most likely to me, especially given that they they moved grain into the storerooms Tobiah had defiled. It may be that Tobiah was even behind this selfishness toward the Levites. In the face of this illegal abuse of the temple workers, you know what Nehemiah does. Look at the text. He calls for a special prosecutor and a special commission, right? He calls for a Senate investigation, right? Is that what he does? Wrong. He gets right in the grill of those who are responsible. He says, this will change now. On his own authority, he reestablishes the Levites at their positions. Verse 12 is so encouraging. Look, in a seemingly voluntary response, the people all send tithes to the temple. In fact, this may even be beyond what they had already given that was in storage. And then Nehemiah establishes trustworthy people to make sure the Levites continue to be paid. Or in, in Moses' beautiful phrase from the law, that the oxen aren't muzzled while they're threshing. Okay, we got to wrap there. Did you, did you enjoy Nehemiah's selfless example? Did you enjoy that? I, I did too. Good. Before we go, I want you to listen very carefully. As great as he is, Nehemiah is not the ultimate example of selflessness. Who is it again, everybody? It's Jesus. And it is only Jesus' power that allows us to be truly selfless. Nehemiah was only selfless because God's Spirit enabled him. Nehemiah trusted that God would provide as he promised, and the Lord granted Nehemiah personal peace. That's what allowed him to be selfless. The same is true for us. We must trust the Messiah whom whom Nehemiah knew would come and we know has come. We must believe in him who paid for sin on the cross, who rose from the dead, who ascended alive into heaven, sending his spirit on those who trust him. Because it is only by God's spirit that we can change. It is only by God's Spirit that we can quit being so selfish and start being selfless in every aspect of life. Amen? All right, pray with me about that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone who is, who is studying with me wherever they are that doesn't know Jesus as Savior. I pray that you will, you will claim them right now that you will open their eyes to the truth. Friend, listen, Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's fully God, and yet he is so selfless, he became human, fully man, because he loves you. 
you, sinner who deserves nothing. And you don't. You don't deserve anything. Neither do I. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life on the cross, and then he conquered death. So that if you trust him, anyone who trusts him becomes an adopted child of God and gets to have everlasting life. Trust him right now. Just believe on Jesus for salvation. If anybody here trusted Christ, raise your hand, would you please? I want to rejoice with you. Raise your hand. Let me delight with you. Good. Amen. Father, I pray for all these believers in Christ, new and old. I pray for myself. I I pray especially for all those for whom this is their church home, that you will help us live selflessly. (laughs) We have a tendency to see ourselves as very selfless because we only play back those few times when we actually sacrifice. I pray that we will move beyond that very short newsreel and we will really be other-centered. We will be like Nehemiah. We will be, by your grace, like Jesus. Please, Lord. I I see the ushers walking forward. Thank you for our offering. This is an awesome opportunity. It it is such a wonderful way to, to live out selflessness, to get to give, and we praise you for the chance to give. This, this, We're so grateful for all the great things you do with it. It's awesome how you use our offerings and multiply them to change the world. We are so blessed. But mainly, we're just glad to have the chance to give. It is important for us, and we are thankful. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.